Okay, so I'm really happy to welcome on the show today, Herman Narula, who's CEO and co-founder of Improbable. Welcome, Herman. So um, we describe Improbable as metaverse technology and experience company. There's actually a lot to talk about. Very interested in in your journey as a founder generally at Improbable. You guys have been around for a while. Um, and of course, a very famous uh, UK headquartered company, but also the evolution of the organization, I guess, and, and more recently looking at Morpheus Tech and M Squared, um, which is the rollout of um uh, a technology stack that enables people to build these really immersive uh, virtual reality worlds and experiences. And in the world of Web3, I know you don't like that term, um, but Board 8 Yacht Club, of course, is perhaps one of the one of the more well-known instances of that that's being developed. So I said, as I said, Improbable is uh, very famous here in the UK and, and, and uh, Europe, UK headquartered, backed by SoftBank and A16Z, hundreds of millions in, in venture capital, always championed as a, as a UK success story with many of the, the founders, founding team coming out of Cambridge and Imperial. And you guys have been working at scale on distributed simulation software for some time, uh, enabling virtual worlds, video games, defense organizations, uh, metaverse environments. And I, I'm pretty sure you've been on the front cover of Wired over here. And, and, and something I've been following for, for some time. I don't time. think I, I ever was, actually, but I, I kind of, uh, yeah. That's... That might be a blessing, because, of course, there's the Wired curse, right? If you're at, at least um, a few decades back, if you're on the front cover of Wired, it was usually meant you'd, uh, you'd, be, you'd be dead in oh, a few wow, years. Okay. Not, now, now, now I'm really scared of the idea of that. No, not personally, you know, but usually the, the company wouldn't, wouldn't last long. I guess that's much worse in crypto and Web3, actually. So we don't, we don't even bother putting anybody on the front of anything on the assumption they'll only last a few months. So we're going to get into lots of stuff, but also um, you are an author of The Virtual Society, which is theoretical framework for the metaverse um, and how values created flows um, goes beyond video games and uh, enables something called the fulfillment economy. So hopefully we're going to get some time uh, to talk about that. But maybe if we can kind of just step back, it would be great to get an abbreviated version of, I guess, your journey as a founder um, leading up to Improbable. And then perhaps um, we can get a sense of either how consistent the mission of uh, Improbable has been or, or how it's evolved. From a really young age, uh, me and coincidentally, uh, Rob, one of my other co-founders, um, we both grew up in virtual worlds before we'd even met. We He learned to code in Second Life. I was obsessed with MMOs and how enriching living inside virtual worlds could be. And we both had this kind of yearning. And this yearning came from the fact that these experiences, while they were fun, they just sort of felt like empty. I want to go into Narnia and stay there. I want to like actually experience meaningful connected, you know, transformative experiences where anything can happen. And I think from the very beginning, we realized that the technology that supported, uh, you know, at the time, what we would have called basically virtual worlds, now we use the word metaverse, but basically the same thing as from when we started, that that technology was really challenged. You know, Phil Rosedale, who is um, now one of the uh, key people uh, in M squared and also uh, a great advisor to us, he, he told us retrospectively that actually one of the challenges Second Life had is the immense problem of bringing large groups of people together. And while that might seem like a niche problem, it's actually fundamental to how you create value in a virtual world. Because unless you can have lots of people in, say, 
a football stadium or a concert or in a massive battle or in an economy, then so many of the emergent ways in which real value is given to digital assets and digital experiences are not possible. It's the same reason why cities are important in the real world or why large uh, economies and communities are important to facilitate so much of the social and economic activity that we come that we've come to value. The trouble, unfortunately, is that this problem, this set of problems, I should say, because it isn't one problem, it's so silly how hard it is that if I had known 10 years ago how hard it was, I probably never would have started Improbable and run screaming in the other direction. It was only the complete idiocy of us as founders and the stubbornness to persist with multiple generations of technology over, over a decade of, I think now I would say members of our team Rob more than me for sure on the technical side, but certainly in, in other ways, um, you know, we're probably the experts at some of this stuff. We're probably the only people that have run uh, events with that many people at that scale in over a hundred countries with all of the problems. And, and it's been a journey of realizing just how hard this is. And the heart of it is the challenge of distributed systems where things don't scale very easily. And I think this is very familiar to a lot of founders in Web3, the idea of scaling being hard when you think of the blockchain. But to generalize it a little bit, everything that we've grown up with, from Amazon to Google to you know e-commerce and websites, initially it was hard to scale them. But these were problems that were solved by building big horizontal systems. So what I, the analogy I like to use is like a bar. Like the longer a bar is and the more bartenders there are, the more people that bar can serve if there's enough alcohol behind them. You know, the bartender on the far left and the bartender on the far right don't actually need to talk to each other. You can just keep extending that bar for infinity, right? And we could all be served. And in a weird way, that's oversimplifying massively how the really big systems that power our modern world work. They, they just scale. They just add more infrastructure. Um, you know, when you get your email, when you log in and interact with a server on Gmail and I do, it's probably not the same server and they're probably unrelated. And, you know, in things like databases and horizontal scaling, these have been done to death. The problem with a stadium is that every single person can speak, see each other and move around. And they're generating vast amounts of information. And that information is vital in that it, if it isn't shared with everyone who can see them or interact with them, then a profound aspect of that experience is lost, right? And the problem is this is, a, this is not a linear problem. Every person that you add, so if you have 100 people, each time someone moves, that's 100 messages. Now imagine all of them are moving. Well, oh no, that's a lot of messages. Now if you have 1,000 or 10,000 or 20,000. So when we began the company um, with our early product, Spatial OS, uh, we had to scale from thousands of what we call operations a second. And I refer to this in my book as a good heuristic metric to millions. And even then, all we had was in effect a niche product. Uh, you know, our challenges with Spatial OS, you know, are very public. There was a lot of enthusiasm. The technology was seen as good, but it was hard to use. Its applications were quite niche. Uh, in certain uh, MMO type contexts, we couldn't support large groups of people in one spot. And the business model was very much one that, you know, had Web3 been around then, who knows, we might have done things differently. But the business model was one that was pretty old school, right? We, we were a kind of a vertically integrated platform. You had to sort of tie yourself to us and that created risks and challenges for companies. What we do now with Morpheus, just to put the numbers in perspective, now we handle 20 billion messages a second. And we do it at like a thousand times less cost. And we do it with AI-powered bandwidth optimization technology that honestly, me and Rob would never have understood if you tried to explain it to us in, uh, like, like 10 years ago, even, even coming out of Cambridge and you know others in our team being a lot smarter than us. Um, a lot of the techniques just hadn't been invented. So even something like rendering, you know, there are no game engines on the planet that actually let you render tens of thousands of dynamically generated uh, objects that all look different, all in the same scene. That, that, that isn't just something that's performant or possible. So we've had to develop our own rendering technology to support avatars and now newly uh, AI-generated content, which you know, has even harder constraints in how you, would, how you would bring that in. So each of these pieces has been a journey, and each of these pieces has had to be both developed 
tested, uh, proven out at scale, managed in the context of something like security. So, I mean, the first time we did an event and we got DDoSed, we were like, oh crap, how the hell do we deal with this? Like, you know, this is, because now you have events with thousands of people in them, it's worth DDoSing them, whereas a single server with five people isn't. Um, so this, this, you know, this has become an endless uh, journey of, of improvement and evolution. And I think kind of the, the, the sort of the key ingredient that has really led to the last two years being uh, probably the most exciting commercial time in Improbable's history. And I think as others have said and reported, we sort of very much hit our stride now. Things like what we've done with baseball and football and where we're going. It's been the ability to make very relevant experiences to basically the majority of culture, right? Where you've got in sports, fashion, music, and celebrity, huge audiences who don't have uh, virtual experiences. You're not competing with video games here. You're, you're filling a gap where there is nothing if other than just watching them on TV. You don't have a way of, of, of getting the fulfillment of interacting with these communities at scale or interacting with each other. And you certainly don't have a way of, of, of cheaply building content in that context and relating it together. Uh, you know, we've been able to solve those problems and now package them commercially in, in, a, in a sort of a Web3-esque way with M squared uh, into something quite different to, to what other people are doing. And, and that, that's been a journey of um, literally trying every other alternative until this point. So, you know, we're pretty confident that this is, this is, uh, this is working, not just because it's working, but also, you know, it's, it has been 10, 10 bloody years of, uh, of figuring it out. Well, I mean, look, firstly, well done for persevering. And of course, quite a spotlight, right? You know, a lot of money raised, a lot of big backers, high profile, especially in a kind of UK and European context. And I believe now you're at the point where it's a stadium size virtual environment. So 30,000 plus real users, we, we say between 20 and 30,000 to keep it ambiguous, but it's a number always going up as we increase the number of operations per second. Fair enough. But still impressive. And I believe, you know, uh, where interaction can happen, high fidelity, lag free, clearly a step change in, in the level of immersion that can be experienced. You know, you talk about this 10-year journey, maybe before we go into the the stack, the Morpheus stack and, and its various layers and perhaps even primitives where you've had to invent something entirely from scratch. As a founder with that pressure, how do you navigate that decade? Retrospectively looking back, I mean, clearly you knew it was going to be challenging because you called yourself improbable. So, you know, there was definitely a a clue there. There's a number of things there. You know, you said with every problem you solved, you perhaps discover a, a new problem or it creates a new problem. But then in parallel, you're having to rely on so many other technologies and there's kind of a timing question there, you know, at at what point things out of your control, could you maybe retrospectively kind of talk us through that journey experience? Working on a really hard and complex problem for 10 years um, is doubly hard because not only do you have to solve lots of technical challenges that you think are easy and are really hard, but the technology is changing around you. And we talked about one example, which is in the beginning, you know, there wasn't even cloud adoption at the level that there is now. And we actually created some open source projects like um, like logging systems that have become really popular, though unrelated to what we do, just in order to build the pieces we needed in order to function. And what I was saying was basically that that's actually led to kind of a really interesting counterintuitive approach to technology at Improbable. One of the things is we used to love complicated new and cutting edge things. And now we hate them. We love using old reliable pieces that we know will be around for a long time. And we know that will be beneficial for our customers and partners to rely upon. So a great example is programming languages for the metaverse. You know, a lot of people have come up with solutions. Epic have um, a company we love and have huge respect for and and we use their engine. Uh, You know, they've come up with something called Verse, for example, uh, which is a really cool idea for 
uh, using kind of functional programming concepts and other ideas. And it's a very academic, very interesting language with really cool features that may very well be right for their ecosystem. But for Improbable, we would never do that. Um, you know, we started off using obscure programming languages like Scala, and we saw what that did to developer adoption and productivity. So now, you know, if you want to build content for M squared, you just you just use JavaScript, right? You're using the web. Um, MML, which is an open source uh, MIT license framework that we've created called Metaverse Markup Language, it extends kind of web concepts for people to build content that can just work in any metaverse uh, that we power or in a game engine or on a website. Um, and, and this sort of decision has trade-offs, right? If you're going to use readily available, uh, all reliable pieces, uh, then you're going to perhaps not get uh, some of the functionality that you might want to enable. But the benefit is you can have widespread adoption and you can reduce the risk for customers. So I think we started off as a company that very much was creating technical risk. And now we're very much a company that is selling the reduction of technical risk. It's also why you know we went down the radical road we went down with M squared. I mean, it's very different from other metaverse plays because like our partners kind of own their own stuff, right? Like Major League Baseball um, you know, is a sovereign kind of metaverse within M squared. They have guarantees and rights and rules, almost like in a government. That isn't how um, platforms like Roblox and Fortnite work. You know, they are what I will call um, traffic orientated platforms. They own the users and they sell you, in a sense, the traffic, right? You want to be there because they have users. We've built an asset orientated platform where, in fact, you have the users and what you want is to own a very rich way of monetizing or engaging those users and you own the asset. And in fact, you bring traffic to the network and that traffic is then shared among different network participants. So it's a very different model in how to create growth and how to create value. And I think more representative in some ways of, of sort of like the Web3 ethos uh, in a way as well. Yeah. And I think definitely how we look at uh, the open metaverse more generally as this kind of interoperable environment where things kind of compound. And I think, look, you know, your journey as a founder over the last decade at Improbable is in a way has parallels to what's going on with the Web3 community over the same decade period where we're kind of going through this abstraction phase at the moment, whether it's account abstraction or something else, whether it's a, a number of different you know protocols revisiting kind of programming languages and looking for things that have an existing developer base rather than necessarily trying to onboard people into Solidity or, or something else. Yeah, and I think, I think it's funny you mention that because it also kind of makes me it's changed my view a lot on chains. So obviously M squared is blockchain agnostic for exactly this reason. You want to let people, you know, do things the way they do. We, and we provide abstractions and services for digital assets that if, if, if you want as a brand, you know, your consumer doesn't even have to know that any blockchain related concepts are involved and you can be quite web do about it if that's what you want. And we think that choice is important. That said though, right, what have we learned over the last 10 years? It's not the best technology necessarily that wins. It's the most well-supported and most effective solution to a problem. So if I was to make a bet, I would say the EVM ecosystem will probably have the last laugh in my mind, uh, even over and above a lot of new and fancy technologies and chains. That said, you know, we're neutral, we use everything, and our customers have different choices. But why do I believe that? Well, because you, know, you look at the sewage system or power grid or road network of a city like London, and it isn't that you could you couldn't build it better. You of course could build it better, but the cost of of, of uprooting and modifying the stable foundations of a working system are always under underestimated. And I think the EVM ecosystem is maybe maybe, and it's hard to really judge, but maybe it's reached a size and a scale 
and a level of liquidity and a level of resilience where it's a bit like a sewage system. You know, nobody wants to crawl down there and fix that, right? Like that. And in fact, you know, that's a good metaphor for Web3 in general and maybe where I differ from a lot of the Web3 advocates, which is I really do see the blockchain as a sewage system. And I mean that in a, in a complementary way. You know, without a, without a sewage system, you can't have modern life. You can't have cities. You can't have all those things. But you don't want consumers to walk through a sewage system. That's not a fun experience for anyone. So, you know, get, you know will consumers ever care or directly get technically involved in the implementation details of blockchain and Web3? God, no. I mean, they don't even want to get involved in how email works. Why do you think they're going to get involved in this, right? So I think if we if we, if we we adopt that mindset, maybe we would make quite different choices as a community. Yeah. And I think, look, I, it's, it's probably now from the perspective of, you know, mid-23, non-controversial to say EVM will play a significant part in the future of, of Web3. And it's a little controversial. I mean, you see a lot of the new chains, which have really impressive technology, the movie ecosystem, like I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd place a bet, right? I mean, the movie ecosystem definitely has things going for it um there's of course solana and other and other um systems in place as well so i don't know if it's exactly clear and non-controversial but i don't i do think what i'm making is maybe a stronger prediction which is i think it it won't be the best tech that wins is i guess what i'm saying we run programs across polkadot ecosystem more recently aptos and move so we believe all, all of these have a, a role to play but i think most have conceded to the reality of a multi-chain world and environment. Of course, that brings huge complexities as well because then you're trying to do things cross-chain and, and perhaps a bit of a, a rabbit hole. But I, I, I do think that it, it's a reasonable perspective to be coming at things. Now, when we were talking off air, while I was using this language of, of Web3, you said you didn't find it necessarily very helpful. Maybe we kind of start there. It'd be good to, and, and similarly, you also said that for, for the metaverse in fairness. So it'd be good to under, under, dig into that a, a little bit more deeply, but then also understand beyond kind of semantics and framing, what was the point in which you felt that Web3 technologies or primitives um, were important in the evolution of Morpheus, I guess? So we came quite late to the Web3 body and we came out of necessity. So the problem we have is how do we get large companies with huge user bases and massive investments in metaverse experiences to share value in any kind of plausible way? How, how do they tell a growth story without going, we're just giving all the value to improbable? And literally the only way we could accomplish that would be some form of shared infrastructure which had guarantees around ownership, allowed for sophisticated relationships to be created between companies and objects without us getting in the way, and kind of had both centralized and decentralized components. And so the Web3 kind of underpinnings of, of M squared are really essential. Like, So I should say that without that, I don't know if we could accomplish um, what we want to accomplish overall. But the way in which we're using it is quite pragmatic. It's very much as a tool. It's not something that you know, some services are centralized. As long as they can be trusted, we don't care if they scale faster. Uh, some some services are decentralized. It's not. We're not in love with a particular piece of technology. We will use whatever is right to give the ecosystem what it needs to be successful, which is the ability to not have platform risk. Um. So so that's what I would say. I mean, in terms of why do I find it unhelpful? It's because when you're making something being in love with a tool is the wrong way to make the right choices. If we're trying to make a shed and you just really want to use a chainsaw, but a chainsaw has nothing to do with making a great shed, we're going to have some problems. And in the same way, I think a lot of what makes digital assets valuable um, and the potential of digital assets, which I truly believe is a, is, is a multi-trillion dollar you know, economy shifting 
you know, sea change in how people will spend their time and where they'll spend their money. And I make arguments for that in the book. And that has little to do with blockchain and more to do with human behavior changing. I would just say that like, you know, some parts of that are suitable to be on chain and to use Web3 concepts, but a lot of uh, parts of it aren't. And in fact, some very unhelpful incentives exist, uh, I think, in the current NFT community that I'm actually really uncomfortable with. I mean, one of the things you might know, know is that Improbable has never sold an NFT to anyone. We've never um, we've never done any consumer sale of a token. Uh, you know, we could have done uh, around M squared. We did we did an institutional raise, but we didn't choose to do that because we've been uncomfortable with this for a while. We, we don't like the idea of a model where a person can deliver absolutely no value to a consumer, get personally rich, and walk away from that. How can that be right? And faced with that choice, like how many people are not going to take that option, right? And I'm not saying that, you know, there is an intentional desire to deceive people, but I do think that what has been set up is a system, which it's no one's fault. It just rewards, it rewards hopium um, with cash and it discourages actual creation of real things of real value. And so we've, we've tried to sort of be an enabler and a partner to you know, Web3 and NFT companies. But I think we ourselves and with the projects that we're more engaged in now in sport and beyond with uh, with M Squared, being very careful to make sure that any digital asset that, you know, we sell or that we or, or that we have a role in, in enabling to sale beyond just being a technology partner, you know, is, is thoughtfully focused on consumer value. And I don't necessarily think that's how the whole community thinks today. Um, because I think a lot of people have a lot of invested, in, a lot of vested interest, both financial and intellectual, in an idea of a fundamentally unworkable, like economic concept. And I think that needs to be upgraded if we're going to get out of this winter and get to somewhere uh, really exciting. We've mentioned economy a few times there. The subject of the book, which we mentioned at the top end, was the fulfillment economy. Could you maybe give us that framing then? I mean, it- so so I think it's really important to start with basic principles that that aren't dependent on my opinion or anyone else's opinion, but are grounded in like real research. So we know that people need fulfilling experiences. This is a, a concept called self-determination theory in psychology. It's 30 years old. It's got tons and tons of research. You need to have you know, experiences that make you feel more competent, getting better at something, possibly from your job. Uh, you need a feeling of autonomy, the ability to make meaningful choices. Fashion gives you that. Um, other things give you that. You need the feeling of relatedness, which is not socializing, but meaning something to other people. And if you don't get these experiences, it's not a choice. It's so bad if you don't get these experiences that it wrecks individuals and societies. It leads to revolutions. It leads to deep psychological unhappiness and trauma. And equally, if you get fulfilled, that's not empty calories. You know, if you're giving someone fulfilling experiences, you're definitionally enriching their life on a really fundamental level, right? If you become a professional tennis player and you become really, really good at tennis, no one would say that's a waste of time. It, you, in some way, we all instinctively understand that you're, you're, you're getting something really valuable out of that experience. You know, if you hop into one of our experiences and, you know, you talk to Kanu, football player, like two weeks ago, who you've always admired in a crowd of, of hundreds of people and your clip gets shared on YouTube, then something has happened there that's more than just entertainment, right? There's fulfillment in, in what you're being given. So my argument is essentially that as we move more and more into virtual experiences, these experiences, these fulfilling experiences become very important and something people need more of. You need a quite rich ecosystem to enable the kind of fulfillment that would allow people to be able to really live meaningful lives in virtual spaces. And we're going to have to solve that problem because we're automating away real jobs. And we're, and we also are dealing with a world where for a lot of people who aren't necessarily living in rich countries, if you're an Indian football fan, or if you're a, a passionate, uh, you know, fan of a particular band in a country they never visit, you actually lack opportunities for fulfilling experiences that you want to have. For me, the metaverse and digital assets need to solve the problem of creating fulfillment for consumers 
in order to create kind of core value. And that's where we should start. You know, is this fulfilling? Is this adding something? Is this useful? Because if not, then where's the value coming from? Like, what are people paying for? What's the purpose of all of this? And it's also why I don't believe video games, um, you know, and I'm passionate about the video games industry. I've been in the video games industry for a long time, working with some of the biggest companies, more behind the scenes, uh, you know, with our services work and other things, you know, then, then kind of upfront. But Video games fundamentally are a very different economic construct to the metaverse because they're closed systems where there's limited incentive in people moving out of them. And they f- they're very good at certain kinds of fulfillment, but they're not necessarily good at other kinds of fulfillment, which is where I think uh, the opportunity really lies. Great. So thanks. That's, that's kind of helpful framing. So maybe if we could then start looking at the stack. So there's Morpheus technology that's been kind of built over the last decade. And then there's m squared maybe we start at morpheus and work our way up i'm assuming that's kind of a logical way to do it right morpheus is like the third i think even fourth generation of uh, networking and other aspects of technology that we've created and it isn't one thing it's a series of solutions to different problems so it's everything from uh, how do you deal with voice streams from thousands of people talking naturally all who can hear each other to how do you manage the networking associated with very dense virtual environments to how do you compress that information to how do you render that information and how do you plug all of that into uh, the creation environments people are familiar with like game engines so that that kind of core technology is really fundamental to to why we enable new experiences but then there's this whole other side of services which are more recent which are really around how do i make an interoperable and functional digital economy with a unit of an, a digital asset that's actually useful for people. Because I think an NFT doesn't do anything, right? It's a no token of ownership, but there's nothing else really on chain. I mean, you can put some more stuff, but nothing like the sophistication required for like a, a, a complex digital avatar. So the MML language, which was open source, and then the services M squared is, is building and, and some of which you can use now, um, that kind of power digital uh, objects and digital identities that are shared by many worlds, that's a different aspect to, to what we do. And we move from a model where we sort of sell Morpheus, we don't sell technology anymore, to one where anybody on M squared can just use it by default. And that was quite an important change as well, because it changed the incentives for us to try to monetize technology to instead, you know, making that technology as widely available as possible. It's it's a great way of, of, of making something people want to use, but it's also a really great way of building a, more of a network effect uh, and more of a more of a sort of interesting commercial model as well, and um, when you're building an economy that that you can participate in. If I can assume that there's some kind of there's some kind of protocols here. Yeah, I missed out like five layers of tech there. I have to say that's like a whole. Um, you know, there's even there's even uh, testing systems we've had to create so you can run thousands of uh, bots. Uh, there's entire orchestration systems, uh, security services to be able to deal with this kind of stuff. So it's a, it's it's such a dizzying array that quite honestly, if you blindfolded me and said like, oh, if you took me aside from a problem and said list them all, I don't even know if I could. Yeah. Uh, I, I wonder if Rob could actually at this point. Um, everything. <laughs> It'd be a good test. Maybe we get him on the podcast and we'll we'll, uh, we'll compare notes at the end. Has so has the well is there will there be a token for a protocol? Because I know you sh- clearly shown a commitment to open source technology. You know. You as you say, going way back uh, in terms of just solving some problems and, and open sourcing it. You know, how have you thought through that at a, at a protocol layer? So the reason why um, there probably will be some kind of, and I don't even want to use the word token here because I don't necessarily think that's the right word, but some kind of uh, unit of value associated with the M-squared network is that you have many parties trying to share value. But I look at that as something that's a necessity in running, operating, and managing this collective commons of services. And it, it's only something that we would introduce at the point where it, there's actually a real economy of useful things that it can power. I think the idea of launching an asset 
and making money off of it before you've made any value for anyone that that is a very dangerous position to put yourself into and one rightly that i think regulators are looking at and going you know how much of this is okay and how much of this isn't now i don't think the approach taken in the us is the right one but i also think that if we're all being honest with ourselves a degree of regulation and a degree of thoughtfulness is necessary so for for me that's like that at the time when we do that you can be assured if you're listening to this that it's something that is actually powering a real economy of things with like a lot of people associated with it whether in sports fashion and beyond and otherwise i don't think it's worthwhile it's down to the founder to determine who they're comfortable bearing the risk of development right and so um you know clearly you're more comfortable without being a professional investor you've clearly been able to attract um venture capital um and so th- also, there's also companies like i mean the other thing is i think a lot of web3 businesses they did licensing deals or they bought the rights to do stuff that associated them with brands uh you know we haven't done that we 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 work with companies that come to us because they see commercial benefit in investing in building their own experiences so that's also meant that the capital cost of operating something like m squared and the the kind of investment we need to make is quite different you know we need to build technology but but actually companies pay for content and users uh you know can can actually get involved right away and build things as well so that that i think that's an important test of whether what you're doing has lasting value if if you need to sort of spend billions of dollars to buy customers then something's wrong right and you're not necessarily making something that's valuable for people yeah exactly and i think look also you know being fair we come back to to the point around timing a little bit earlier you know now is a different time i think to be doing what you're trying to do right brands are more engaged there's also infrastructure whether it's your own stack or or, or wider that's kind of been battle tested to a degree that make this a less kind of risky endeavor. So you mentioned brands and organizations, and I know there are kind of several uh, associated, Google Cloud, NVIDIA, um, Dolby. Could you maybe talk us through some of the kind of collaborations that you have, what form they take? So I think one of the key um, crazy things in a way about M Squared is, uh, at least that our investors originally thought was crazy, is that actually, technically speaking, we could get cut out of our own network. So M squared is is in it's currently a, a subsidiary, but will be uh, but will be increasingly independent of Improbable in the way that it is run and organized. And even now, it makes decisions using an independent board uh, in preparation for that because we think that's really important. Ultimately, Improbable is just one of potentially many technology service providers into the network. And the network, you know, can pay for technology. It can provide incentives for people to deliver valuable services, just like a, a government can subsidize things that make the economy more valuable. Um, but in the end, right. It, it should be up to the end develop the end kind of business to be able to freely use whatever technology they consider valuable and they consider useful so we tried to make sure m squared only has only makes those choices or only forces the use of things that are really genuinely essential to the integrity of the network and wherever that happens we try to make sure that the way that that m squared prices or makes money there is much more like a utility which is designed to create profit at the upper levels at the businesses on top rather than as an extractive tax on everyone that doesn't create value back for everyone else and so this is this is a pretty different economic pyramid to how uh, you know big platform companies have typically operated and again it's not because we're nice people it's because there's no other way to bring people like you know major sports leagues on board they're never going to do it unless they have a sense of choice and ownership if we can we talk a little bit about uh, the other side and, and, and board at yacht club yeah if it's if it's yuga related uh, it's always best uh, to talk to yuga directly um you know we well, yeah they're, 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 that's 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 very important uh, with regards to them so but if it's related to anything that we've done you know that we're, that, that you know that that isn't that i'm happy to talk about 
about it um, if I'm able to. But usually with our customers, we we let them speak for themselves. Okay, no problem. Understand. But depending on what the question is, I may, I may be able to answer. Well, that, so. I'm trying to think to, to generalize it a little bit more. So, you know, clearly I bought some apes a long time ago and and uh, have kind of participated in, in the community. And I know a lot of people are very excited about the, the, the possibility um, of the other side. But clearly it's a big long-term project and everybody that I know that's involved in it will say exactly the same thing. You know, it, it's it's a very ambitious project. It's going to take a lot of time. We're actually broadcasting a major football game on Saturday in the Metaverse. Oh, which I, is heard, I heard about this, but yeah, go on, tell, yeah. tell me, tell me. And what I'd say is like, although, you know, Web3 crypto news is interesting at that level, the fact of Web3 and crypto reaching hundreds of millions of people, I think, is potentially even more exciting for the community. But yeah, so the, on, on Saturday, we're broadcasting um, in partnership with Sky and in for, for the benefit of Ukraine and with uh, Alexander Zinchenko, who's an Arsenal player. Um, we're broadcasting a football match into a watch party for thousands of people to be able to both watch and jump in in the metaverse for the first time involving influencers who are really important in the football community um, in, in online, but aren't officially part of football commentary or football watching. So it's like the metaverse is actually solving a real problem here. You know, you've got people all over the world who can't come to the game, who can socialize together in this space. You've got famous influencers who they know, who they've never been able to meet and who've never commented on a game, commenting on a game. And sure, it's a, it's a charity game and it, it's not it's not exactly, um, you know, the, the most competitive experience ever, but it's a really good test run of what the future could hold and how, I guess, ordinary normal people can begin engaging with the metaverse and with Web3 without calling it that, right? You know, with the football events we've done, no, nobody has used the word metaverse. Nobody cared. They just like the fact that they're meeting the player they wanted to meet and they're doing it easily and quickly. So I think that really emphasizes the ethos. And sure, th these things are long-term projects, but as you may notice, we do events almost weekly now. I think we did like multiple events last week. And our advice to all partners, our partners and others is you don't have to take years to build this stuff. You can be delivering value all the time. You can be shipping and launching and creating experiences all the time. You know, me and Rob, we put on an event when I had pneumonia um, and was literally vomiting blood. If you were there, uh, you're very much an insider if you got the golden blob. Uh, but we put that event on in five hours, right? And we dropped a Twitter link and jumped in and we were able to create value for people. So, you know, my philosophy sort of 10 years in is release fast, iterate quickly, do it publicly. You know, I think I think not doing that is is really denying you as a business the opportunity to see if what you're building is good. And it's design, denying consumers the opportunity to kind of interact with it. So for us, that's the pattern that we most advise people to take. Of course, you know, we can only advise so much um, in the way in the way that we work. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And, and I guess people have different ambitions about what they want to achieve, different time horizons. But I think you're absolutely right, you know, being pragmatic um, and also learning from from running these experiences. Right. There's going to be lots of learnings about how you even run an event like this of that scale that isn't a technology question. I mean, I'll tell you tell you that they're the getting the synchronization of video cameras in the metaverse broadcasters people jumping in security and beyond you can only learn that by doing it and you know i from 10 years of mmos and online games some very public failures some things you know more successful thankfully uh, i can tell you you know we if, if there's a wrong way of doing things we've definitely tried it at least once and one of the worst anti-patterns is a long development cycle everything can be broken into small pieces everything can be broken into things that can be run quickly and that's what a lot of our technology enables so you know we, we are always very focused on encouraging people like if there are startups listening to this as well like you know i think if, if you have a plan which is you know develop experience for three years then release to consumer 
maybe you want you maybe you want to shake that up you know that that isn't that isn't necessary well look i mean i think that's a, a great note to end on especially for web3 builders out there who have a, who have a tendency to um to kind of think in in the, these kind of you know very long time horizons i mean it's been a pleasure having you on hearing your journey really excited to see what happens next over at improbable um the event that you referenced um i believe by the time we release this would have happened so people will, ho- will hopefully be able to go and, and hopefully it hopefully didn't crash no, in any way I'm, uh, that'll be funny, I'm, sure, yeah. I'm sure it'll be all right i'm sure it'll be all right the, the gods will be with yeah, we've you we've got a pretty good track record so far so hopefully it'll be all right very good but thanks so much for coming on Helen. if you enjoyed today's podcast please make sure you subscribe rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of web3 